You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is Robert Colker, author of the best-selling book, Hidden Valley Road. Robert? It's great to be here, Bob. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Now, you're like me, we're talking before we started, that you're Bob. Were you ever Robert? I was Bobby until, I think, the day I arrived for college. And um, someone asked me my name, and I tried to say Bobby, but I, um, I, I got stuck on the second syllable. Something kept me from saying uh, Bobby, and I just switched to Bob immediately, and that was it. Yeah, I was certainly Bobby growing up and occasionally in my family. Certainly by the time I hit college... Uh, I was not Bobby either, but I have never been Robert. It's uh, <laughs> really kind of funny. Okay, so you wrote this book, Hidden Valley Road. It's about a family, the Galvin family from uh, Colorado Springs. There are 12 children, and six of them get schizophrenia. How did you come in, become involved with this story? Well, my career really took shape at New York Magazine, where I wrote a lot of uh true crime stories and other dramatic and vivid nonfiction tales. And I tended to specialize in writing about people who never imagined that they would get news coverage. So not politicians or movie stars, but everyday people caught up in something extremely, uh, you know, of human interest. And um, my longtime editor there, John Gluck, uh, contacted me one day about four years ago. We both had left New York Magazine years earlier and had lunch every now and then, but he uh, he contacted me saying that he went to school with uh, a friend of his, high school, decades ago. Her name was Lindsay. They dated in high school. And uh, uh, it's just because I've read the book. Is this Hotchkiss? What they're yes. referring to as high school, the prep school that she ultimately went to. Yes, they both were, um, you know, outsiders at Hotchkiss, sort of not part of the preppy set, and they dated then. And of course. 
Lindsay wasn't really talking much about her home life or anything then, but as the decades went on and they stayed friendly, he learned the ins and outs of her family, and he got to know her older sister, Margaret, also. And then one day in 2016, the sisters came to him and said, we've been thinking about, for decades now, ways to try to tell the story of our family, ways to let the world know about our family. We believe scientists have been studying our family for decades. The things that happened to us as children are so extreme and unbelievable, no one would believe it. And we've struggled, but we've decided that the time is right to talk to an independent journalist about telling the story and following the story wherever it goes and talking to everybody, not just making it a, a story of the two sisters. And so I got on the phone with them four years ago, and, and this was the first I heard about any of it. This is a family with 12 children, born during the baby boom, the oldest in 1945, the youngest in 1965. And since, then we're, the- since we're being truthful, how old are you today? <laughs> I am 51. Okay, uh, you look young. Okay, so the uh, children were born during the baby boom. Yes, and um, a couple years after the youngest was born, uh, the oldest started to get sick, started to, to behave strangely, had psychotic breaks, was examined by psychiatrists. The parents were desperate to try to mainstream him and, and get, have him you know, kind of grow out of it. And then another one got sick and another and another, um, six of the 12. And then there was abuse and there were among the brothers and there was a murder-suicide with one brother. Uh, As the sisters were telling me about this in that first phone call four years ago, I was simply stunned and really brought low. I thought to myself, how could all this happen to just one family? And um, then I wondered how they could even remain a family. You know, why would either of these sisters want to stay in a family like this, given everything that happened to them. But they were not that way on the phone. They, they were ready to talk and to tell their story, and they believed that everybody else in their family would too. Um, they felt like people could perhaps learn from their experiences, but also they had done a lot of work in the interve- intervening decades. They had um, a lot of therapy and a lot of internal examination to try to move through the traumas of their childhood. So they felt like that could be a big part of the book as well. I was more skeptical. I, I, it took me some doing, but I, I, what I said to myself was, there's no way I would work on this unless every living family member was supportive of it. I didn't want to, uh, to, to suddenly be emotionally invested in writing this family story and then see that there was opposition within the family to even having it be out there. So I decided to go very slowly and talk to everybody very gradually. Well, let's, and, let's, let's go a little bit slower here. Sure. At what point did you decide there's a book here and you wanted to do it? Um, it was about three months after that first phone call. What I did in those three months was very strategic. I said, um, and I was very open with the sisters. I said, Let, let's take this slowly. Books take time anyway. Um, what if once a week I get on the phone for an hour with a different family member of yours, and then also with a few doctors who have talked to the family and might be able to give me some perspective on the medical side of things. And I'll be very open-ended in these phone calls. I'll just say, so the sisters are interested in a book. Uh, what do you think about that? And then just see what they have to say. And I said to the sisters, we'll all know at the end of three months or so whether or not this is doable or not. And if it isn't, I'll give you the tapes of the conversations that that I've had with these folks. And you can write your memoir with it. It, It'll be my good deed for the year. And and they could go off and do what they needed to do 
in their own way. But um, it, being open this way and being kind of casual about it was helpful because I was able to really, really hear what each individual family member had to say about their family, what had to say about the idea of the book. And everyone was, was comfortable enough with it so that a year later when I got a book contract and started working on it full time, I really was up at full speed from the, from the get-go then. Okay, let's go. So you do this three-month period of uh, research. Then what goes off in your brain, and then how do you get the book deal? Um, well, after the three months, I thought, well, this is, this is really doable. I should get to Colorado, where most of the family lives, and try to meet some people personally. And most importantly, I should meet face-to-face with Mimi Galvin, who was the matriarch of the family, who at that point was 91 years old, I believe. And uh, to start doing interviews with her to put together a book proposal. And, um, and then I, you know, I reached out to my agents, who have been my agents for more than 10 years, and were, they, they really believed that this was something special. Um, the more I talked about it with them, the more I realized how unique this was. There are wonderful, wonderful books about mental illness out there, about the science of mental illness, and there are wonderful books that are memoirs about the experience of either having your own issue or um, having a family member experience that issue. But nobody, to my knowledge, had been able to do a 360-degree omniscient you know, book that would read like a novel where you have every input from every family member and everybody's perspective woven together so that it, it really reads like some ambitious narrative nonfiction. And so I felt like I had a unicorn here, you know, something, something that nobody else had. And I wanted to see how far I could take it. It really was a mystery at the beginning, whether it would be a science book about an interesting case study or a story of sisters surviving trauma. But by the end of those three months, I got invested in this being much more ambitious. This could be an epic, uh, an intergenerational family saga that also is a medical mystery. Uh, a book about a family where you get to know the parents nice and slowly. You, you, you walk in their shoes, you live with them for years as they raise a family, as they have dreams, as they realize some of those dreams, and then as things start to fall apart. And then in the whole second half of the book, the children start to grow up and get new perspectives on everything their parents have done. And because you've read part one, you have real perspective on, on the parents that you wouldn't have otherwise had. And then interwoven, you get a little bit of information about uh, why this family mattered for medical research, which I think kind of raises the stakes a little bit. Okay, let's really get down to the nuts and bolts. You say this to your, you tell this, give the pitch to your agents. They immediately say, yeah, we're in. They wanted me to do it before I wanted to do it. Um, they they understood how, how different this was and how potentially um, it could really connect with a lot of people. And how do you sell it to a publisher? Um, you write what's called a book proposal. When you're a novelist and you do this, often that means you've written half the book already, you've written some chapters already, maybe you've, you've written the entire thing already. But with nonfiction, it's more of a, um, perhaps you'd have some sample chapters, but really it's more of a, a high-speed version of what the book will be, like a flyover of I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and I already have done this and I already have done that and this is how I envision it, a little like a Hollywood pitch meeting. And uh, I sent that to... How long did it take you to write that? Oh, um, over Christmas time, so like a, a couple of weeks. And then it went, then my agents helped me revise it. And then we sent it out in the spring. Um, uh, 
the timing of it, it uh, there was some particular reason to send it out then. And um, something like a dozen publishers received it, and I took meetings with 10 of them, and eight of them bid on it. And the interesting part was that I have a good friend, one of my best friends, Jennifer Senior. She She's an author and worked with me at New York Magazine, and most recently has been a book critic and cultural critic at the New York Times. She's on the op-ed page now. And she said, I predict that the um, people you meet with who have the most people in the room are the people who are going to bid the highest. What was the uh, thought there? The thought was that they were so, that there would be enough institutional investment in the idea of the book that there'd be people in the house would be so psyched about it that they would want to try and put on a good show for me. So um, lo and behold, she was right. Doubleday had the most people in the room and, and, and they won the auction and, and I could not be happier. My editor, Chris Popolo, is one of the best in the business. It's been a wonderful experience the whole way through. Okay. How lucrative is a deal like this? Well, it had to be enough for me to work full time on it. Um, uh, that was not the case with my first book, Lost Girls, where I had enough time to maybe take six months of leave from my job at New York Magazine at the time and write it. And then I was working full time and revising the book for the next six months to a year. That that was difficult. But that would not have been possible with a book like this because while I certainly had access to the family and could go and interview them anytime I wanted to, the science of schizophrenia was something I was starting at zero with. And I really needed to hit the books and really need to inter- needed to interview researchers and understand neurobiology and biology and genetics and psychiatry and brain chemistry and pharmacology. It was very daunting. And so there was no way I could do what so many people I admire do, which is, you know, wake up at four in the morning and write for three hours and then go to their day job. It just wasn't going to happen with a book like this. So the, the advance had to be enough to sustain me for a few years while I worked on it. Luckily, I had written one book before, so I had a bit of a track record. So I wasn't, um, I wasn't somebody coming in out of absolutely nowhere saying, I got a book idea and you got to give me a lot of money. <laughs> uh, I, I, I had a little legitimacy. <laughs> I get it. Okay. Did you do any other work while you were writing this book? No, it was all full time. And then if you say you started four years ago and ultimately the deal was six months after you started, how much time did you actually spend writing the book? I mean, researching and writing. Um, well, um, the, from the, I, I first met the Galvins on that phone call in the spring of 2016 and I handed in a manuscript in, um, September of 2018. Um, but it really was a year and a half of full-time work, not two and a half years, because um, uh, that first year I was still, you know, talking to the family and putting the book proposal together and whatnot. How uh, how come the book was f- turned in in September and didn't come out for another 16, 18 months? That's the book business. It's really in- unbelievable. Um, but, it, but things move very, very slowly. The book was pretty much ready nine months before its publication date in, in April. Um, what, what the publisher needed was time to build buzz because this is a big book. It's a thick book. It has lots of footnotes. You know, it's, it's heavily researched. It's not realistic. to. However, just saying for people who have not read the book, it's not dry in any form or fashion. I don't want to make it sound like a tone. Oh yes, of course. Um, and, uh, you know, God willing, you read it and you think, oh, it's like a novel. It you know lifts off the exactly. page. Exactly. That's a great thing about it. Um, but uh, it's an ambitious big 
big book of the year and with an ambitious big book of the year, they don't want to just dump it on people and say, hi, review this for next week, please. They want to start building up interest and sending it out early and getting it to critics and getting it to bloggers and getting it to uh, special readers on Goodreads to, to, to get people starting to talk about it. Um, they put me in front of the media in December with people like um, uh, People Magazine or the Wall Street Journal, places that plan their news coverage way in advance. So, so it really is a, a function of the book promotion business. It's not about it, it, it's not about the physical act of publishing, which of course they could do with the push of a button and get it on people's Kindles tomorrow. To what degree does the success of the book align with your personal expectations? It's done. It's 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 been overwhelming. It's more than I ever could have imagined. I um, I had a, uh, in my fondest dreams, I imagined it would be very well reviewed and respected, and everyone would say, "Oh, it's a very noble book, written very well intentioned, and how interesting that you did all this work, and the people in it. I'm sure they're very happy to tell their story told." But you know, big nonfiction books like this that are narratives that are about a specific issue. They all are like that. They're all big swings for the bleachers, and they either they either get published and people say, "Oh, nice, good job," and then move on to the next thing, or they build up ahead of steam and momentum and really connect with a lot more people. And so I'm uh, when I write a book, when I write books like this, and this is my second one, they are bets at the big at the high stakes table for sure. In that sense. Okay, uh, what day did the book actually come out? April seventh. Okay, so right in the heart of the COVID-19 era, I've talked to other people whose books were in the pipeline, and they say, traditionally, other than the big media you're talking about, the Wall Street Journal, the Times, Washington Post, they go on a tour, which needless to say, you cannot do now. So was it a good or bad thing to put out the book then, and how did you promote it beyond the traditional outlets? Um, I had book dates set up at bookstores around the country. It was going to be a solid week of running around basically every region very quickly. Um, and of course, all those dates got scrubbed as soon as the, the shutdown started happening. Um, I had one huge advantage, and I, and I don't want anyone who's listening to think that I would complain about publishing in the time of COVID at all, because I'm in a very privileged position because the book got selected for Oprah's book club. And uh, th I knew about that a few weeks before it actually was announced. So I had a few weeks there where the pandemic was, was coming. And without Oprah, I would have been very, very despondent and sure that my book was going to fall off the face of the earth. But because it was part of Oprah's book club, I knew it was going to get a huge publicity push no matter what that a lot of people would order it online, even if Amazon wasn't shipping packages on April 7th because of a world economic collapse, people could still read it on April 7th. It, it gave me a bit of calm. And so I don't wanna give anybody the impression that um, that I was cool in the pool while other people were sweating for for no good reason. There, there was a, a very nice turn of events for me that I don't take for granted. Okay, in April, um Amazon ran out of a lot of physical bestsellers. Did that happen to you? There was a little bit of a lag at some point where but but I think that was mostly because they were prioritizing shipments for essential supplies. So normally prime members could get the book in a couple days, but they were getting notices saying it's going to be a week or so because we need to send out hand sanitizer to 
people around the country. Um, and that, that, that subsided after a little while, but that was minor, that issue. Okay, and how did it become one of Oprah's picks? Well, as far as I know, um, the books editor at Oprah Magazine heard about the book early during that press period that I was telling you about earlier, and she put it in front of Oprah because Oprah was planning to do a TV special for about mental health. She was going to work on it with Prince Harry, uh, and I, I don't know if she's done that yet or if that's still in the works. Her deal is with Apple Plus, the streaming service, and so she was going to put together a special for Apple Plus. And so this is the way it works, apparently. People put books in front of Oprah, and she has a bunch of them, and then one of them, you know, she just says, let's make this the book club book, and that's what she did this time. She went back to Lee Haber at Oprah Magazine and said, let's make this the book club book. And Lee said, okay. And she, okay. in talking with me, she said, I mean, mental health's a big issue for her. It's important whoa, whoa, to her. Whoa, 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 whoa. Mm -hmm. You spoke with Oprah. What was, <laughs> what was that like? Well, I, um, I did not have one of those moments where she called and I said, you're kidding. It's not, you know, you're, you're a friend playing a joke on me. Like she sounds exactly like Oprah Winfrey. So I, I, I immediately knew who she was. And as I said, I was sitting there at home sweating out pre-publication. So the minute she called, I started laughing. I burst out laughing because I knew there could only be one reason why she was calling. And, um, and, uh, and that I was suddenly being saved. I was being, being really helped out tremendously uh, by a, a tremendous act of kindness by her. So I was, I was uh, hyperventilating and I was laughing. And then I was thanking her a lot and telling her how much it would mean to the family too. You know, the family, uh, the girls say that they would watch Oprah's show as kids and they would say the people on, the, on her show have nothing on us. Like we should really be on her show. So I think that might be why Oprah was interested too, because it is a, the family at, at first glance would be a good subject for the Oprah Winfrey show. Okay. Did you have a substantive conversation with her or was it just basically I'm calling to congratulate you? She, um, she was calling to congratulate. I, I, um, I said to her that, you know, I love, I said, I, I am that, that I was extremely grateful. And I said that it was the challenge of a career to be able to weave together so many different perspectives of so many different people to, to juggle so many characters, if you will. It's not characters because it's nonfiction, but juggle 12 kids and two parents in a book and have readers actually be able to keep track of it all was a huge challenge. And that I wanted to try to make it like something like East of Eden. And I mentioned East of Eden to her because I know that that was an Oprah's book club pick a couple years ago and that she liked it. And that was an influence on me as well. And she got it. She said, oh, yes, of course. This is a lot like this makes me think of East of Eden a lot. I see what you're saying. So she definitely read it? Oh, yeah. She definitely read it. She's a reader. The other day, in the prior to her leaving television, the book would also get a TV segment. Mm -hmm. So needless to say, it's great having Oprah pick it. But what does it, that actually mean today? other than, you know, giving a higher level of notice to the book. The new version of Oprah's Book Club is a promotion deal with Apple. So she, um, obviously the book's available everywhere, including Amazon. But when she promotes the book online, she says, swipe up to buy it on Apple Books. And when she does a TV show about the book, it's a special for Apple Plus. So I was interviewed Unfortunately, it was on FaceTime because of the pandemic, but family members and I and experts were all interviewed on FaceTime for a show that'll be out on June 4th 
or June 5th, I think. On, on Apple, Apple Plus. Plus. On Apple, Apple TV Plus. Plus. But the big thing, and the thing that I did not realize that she does, is that she and the club actually read the book together week after week after week. They've divided this book into six weeks, and they meet on Instagram, on, on the Oprah's Book Club account. And at each Monday morning at 10 a.m. for the last five weeks, the last one is next Monday, um, her account runs a, a short video by Oprah. who She's holding my book. And she says, okay, so we've read chapters, whatever, through whatever, and this happened and that happened and this happened. My question for you is, how, what do you think Lindsay was feeling when she made that decision? And then in the comments section of Instagram, hundreds of people start to weigh in in real time, giving their perspectives on the book. So it is a real live book club that is actually reading the book. And for an author, it's been mind-blowing week after week to watch hundreds of people reading your book and talking together about it. And I get to sit in and look at it. It's, it's more than I could ever have imagined. It's just stunning. If someone is picked by Oprah, generally speaking, how many additional sales do you get? Well, I only know that they increased my, my initial print run dramatically by like tens of thousands of copies. I don't know if it's different for fiction or if it's, you know, uh, um, or different for, from book to book, but it, it's, a, it's a huge leg up. Okay, so how many did they ultimately print originally, Doubleday? Um, they print, originally, they printed close to 100,000 copies and um, hardcover. And now they're up to like 133,000 hardcover. Okay. What's the arc of a book like this? I mean, every book is unique, but is it tend to be front loaded for getting the paperback sales somewhere down the future? A hardcover book, uh, will it sustain for months? Has it already peaked? Is it yet to peak? I think that... Um this book's a, a little bit of an outlier because it has because it's been very successful. So it has remained on the bestseller list. Um, the sales are not what they were in the first couple of weeks. They've they've gone lower, but the sales are still high enough to keep it on the bestseller list. But sometime soon, you know, the house always wins. You know, the, someday soon, one week coming up, maybe next week, maybe two, three, four, seven weeks from now, it will fall off the bestseller list, and then hopefully it will it will develop some sort of niche where it continues to sell. Let's hope thousand copies a week or something like that. And then it becomes a regular earner for the company. And then within a year, the paperback comes and gives it another jolt and that that's at a different price point. So it really is, it's really appealing to an entirely different book buying public. There, there are people out there who never in the world in, in their, in their lives have bought a big, heavy first edition hardcover book because it's so expensive. They wait for the paperback. And so that whole market gets reached. Meanwhile, electronic books, in, especially in the time of COVID, are basically half the sales. Um, so wait, 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 slow there. Half of Hidden Valley Road was essentially Kindle. Yes, but um, I'll be, why don't I be a little clearer? Let's say this. Uh, it's like roughly 40, 41% is, is Kindle or Apple Books or electronic. Roughly 40 or 41 or 42% is hardcover books. And then the rest is audiobook. The audiobook sales are not trivial. They're, they're over 15%. Some, sometimes it seems like it's closer to 20%. Audiobooks are a big deal. Okay, who reads the audiobook? Um, well, anyone who drives. Um, no, 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 know. no. Who literally <laughs> did the reading of the book for oh, the recording? Oh, oh um, he's wonderful. Sean Pratt. He's terrific. He actually read Lost Girls, which was my first book. 
and they they asked me if I was all right with using him again and um, using him's a bad term I he used me I'm really fortunate he's a star people love him and he did a, my brother-in-law listened to it actually said it was great okay you're obviously a student of the game uh if you read the New York Times Wall Street Journal Kindle sales continued to decrease as a percentage of overall sales. Yet in your case, they're really notable. Is it a COVID thing? What do you think's going on here? I think it's a COVID thing. And also the the book a lot of bookstores just aren't open. Um, which obviously contributes more to the Kindle thing, but it means fewer people are browsing and seeing the Oprah's book club stand and saying, Oh, I'll buy this. So who knows, maybe that'll change. Maybe in the fall um, the hardcover will be sitting at airport bookstores again and people will be flying again. I'm being a little optimistic thinking that people are going to be flying in the fall, but you know what I'm saying. Okay. You got your advance. When will you see another check? <laughs> well, typically it's four payments. Um, so I'm going to use fake numbers. You know, if the advance is a million dollars, you get $250,000 when you sign, you get another 250000 when um, you deliver the manuscript and the publisher decides it's good enough to be edited and they place you on the schedule. So that might, that's a little wiggly. That could be, that could take some time because they might want you to do another draft or do another revision. But once it's, once it's put on the schedule, payment number two comes and then payment number three comes on publication day. And then payment number four comes a year after publication day, which more or less usually coincides with the paperback coming out. Well, in this particular case, you're obviously have earned back the advance already. So uh, in terms of royalties, those will come a year from publication? Um, I usually get a royalty statement twice a year in April and October, and it's pretty much right up to the date. So if this book earns back by the end of the summer, which hopefully it would, I might actually see some royalties in that October statement. Okay, with such a successful book, even though we're in the COVID-19 era, did you splurge at all in your personal <laughs> life? No, it basically gave me peace of mind in the COVID-19 era. It meant that um it meant that I didn't have to worry about lining up a new project right away that I could that I can sit and and take care of my family and and take it slow during this difficult time and not sit and worry about the house being foreclosed on. The book is a huge success. Has this, even though we're in this crazy era, has this led to any new opportunities? Not yet. Um, I have a couple of ideas that are hopping, but nothing nothing that's really book length. Um, the biggest opportunities have been uh, meeting other people um, who are in the mental health community, people who have been touched by mental illness, either in their family or through their work. And those people are emailing up a storm. And so I'm, I'm, I'm handling a lot of reader feedback at the moment from people who have really emotionally connected with the book. And have you personally been to therapy? Yes, but not for anything remotely like schizophrenia. And schizophrenia is not. Of course not. not. But you had some experience in the field. We live in a world where many males are anti-psychotherapy. That's why I asked the question. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, it's been like ra regular meat and potatoes therapy for 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 garden variety anxiety and um and so i've done on and off tried this and that with various people over the years um and um i think it's terrific and it's also i mean as a writer and someone who interviews people i'm basically sitting and witnessing the therapists 
interviewing style and getting pointers from them and, and tips from them on how they how they listen and how they draw me out. So I, I have a appreciation for that as well while I'm in the middle of it. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, you have the deal. It's a go. You start. How do you start? Tell us some of the story. Um, well, uh, the, the story is, is the American dream that, that is suddenly shattered when, when everything goes wrong. It's about a couple that falls in love during World War II and uh, raises their family during the Cold War. And then by the late 60s, they're a model family that everyone else looks up to. Uh, they're smart, they're charismatic, they're cosmopolitan in, an, in what is basically a very small town out in Colorado Springs. They have a high profile and they are self-consciously invested in being a model family toward others. It makes them feel good that other people think that they're perfect. And then the worst happens. Then this illness hits them and, and they have the bad luck of it happening at a time where half of the experts want to blame them for causing schizophrenia in their children. And the other half want to put them in institutions and medicate them into a stupor for the rest of their lives. Um, there's no middle ground and there's no, no way to really do anything without becoming scandalized. And so they try to cover it up for a few years and then things get worse and worse and worse. Another son gets sick and abuses his wife and starts surreptitiously abusing the two younger sisters. And then a third boy, um, decompensates, you know, 
uh, in the middle of his classroom at a young age. He's only 14. And then uh, in the worst possible moment, uh, the golden child, Michael, uh, sorry, not Michael, Brian, who has gone off to California to be a rock star, he um, kills his girlfriend and then shoots himself. Um, and everybody wonders if it could have been prevented and what, what is going on. And finally, the, the, by 1975 or so, the, the family can't hide it anymore. They, they, they have at least three mentally ill sons living at home. They have two more with the warning signs. They have one who's dead. And um, the, the family's in totally dire straits. And that, that's when the father has a stroke. Um, I, I, as I tell the story, uh, it, it sounds impossible. But then... Um, interesting things happen, stuff that's out of Charles Dickens, like a wealthy family that's friendly with the family, with the Galvin family. They they pluck one of the daughters up out of the family and they move her in with them and they help her out. And then Lindsay goes off to Hotchkiss and tries to, she changes her name. She actually was born with the name Mary and now she goes by Lindsay. She tries to reinvent her life. There's a quickie marriage uh, that one of them has in order to try to run away from her family. There's um, years of therapy where they try to find a way to confront their abusive brother. And then there's different levels of denial that their mother continues to go through because they can't understand why their mother chose the six sons over them. They feel forsaken. They feel abandoned. And then out of nowhere, in the middle of the 1980s, there's a knock at the door, and it's a medical researcher from the National Institute of Mental Health. She's there to tell uh, Mimi that her family has a genetic disorder, that it's not bad parenting that caused it, that it's not something in the drinking water, that it's not a contagious disease, that she's not to blame at all. And, and they suddenly become studied by some of the pioneers in mental health medicine. And, and the story takes an entirely new and potentially quite hopeful turn as the daughters start to rebuild their lives, as everybody starts to see their parents with new eyes, and as further secrets get revealed later on. It, the way I, I try to describe it, it does sound enormously twisting and turning and complicated with a lot of moving parts. There are interesting subplots too, where one son goes off to a commune and lives there and it changes his life. Um, I wanted it to have this kind of epic feel where you can follow the family on different detours and digressions and see how many different people experience their family in different ways. Uh, I wanted it to have that kind of um, big Russian novel kind of feeling so that you got so swept up in the family's ups and downs that you forgot that you were being spoon fed a lot of technical information about neurobiology. Okay. Uh, we covered your initial conversations with Margaret and Lindsay. What were your conversations like with the rest of the members? The father was already dead when you started, yes. the, and there was one brother who was dead, but you spoke with all these people. What was that like? Well, the one big challenge was to talk to uh, the mother of the family, Mimi, who was 91. She was my first phone call after the sisters, and it was, um, it was, a, it was really, really quite wonderful. This is a woman who, uh, despite everything she's been through, is of tremendous good cheer, and um, really um, tries very hard to look on the sunny side of things. That, that means that she was very willing to talk to me because she knew that this book would be more about the genetics and less about 
uh, judging her, and she was tired of being judged by the medical establishment. That was really a big problem for her. The problem with Mimi is that she didn't want to really talk about unpleasant subjects. She was had spent a lifetime sort of deflecting unpleasantness. And so it took the personal visit with her, with help from her daughters also, to try to nudge her into a place where she felt comfortable talking about the years and years of shame she was made to feel for having this problem in her house. The way that she was told that she was a failure, the way that she sometimes felt unsafe around her own sons and how she had to keep that to herself. Um, these are things that weren't easy for her to talk about, but, but, uh, but to her credit, she really did. But mainly I found her inspiring. I mean, one of her big sayings was, you can't be heartbroken every day, which I think, you know, for someone who's been through everything she's been through is a pretty astonishing thing to say. And sometimes if I'm having a bad day, I think about that still. I think, well, can't be heartbroken every day. And maybe maybe there's something to that. And then I talked to medical well, researchers. Well, before you leave Mimi, <laughs> since you're with an observer and you wrote the book, how do you believe she coped? Um, I think she developed a certain uh, set of blinders where she decided um, that, that certain things were important than other things she was going to ignore. And I think that some of the things that she decided to ignore were the healthy children in her family, which was a you know, of course, something the healthy children grew up feeling horrible about and really judged her for. But this was her, this was her survival strategy. She was going to focus on making sure that the sick boys like Donald and Peter and Matthew and Joe and Jim, not Brian because he had died, were, were getting all the help they, they could have and had a place to come home to if they needed to, if they weren't in the hospital or in a group home. And, and that meant seeing a million doctors and going all over the place and becoming an advocate, basically, for her children. But it, didn't, it, it meant that um, if little Lindsay or Margaret went to their mother and said, I have a problem, the response from Mimi would be, you don't have any problems. You know, the, these boys have problems. You, you, you're fine. And so they, they basically lost their mother. And, and so that, that, but this was her strategy. And in a way... Um, you see as the book goes on that, that the children, as they grow up, they start to understand her strategy better. They may not forgive her everything that she's done, but they get her in a way that they didn't get her when they were children. And this is something I think that we as readers can really um, identify with. We all judge our parents in a certain way when we're younger, and then we all see them with slightly different eyes when we get older. Sometimes it's because we have children of our own, or sometimes because you learn things that you weren't told when you were a child. Or sometimes you're just older and you get what it's like to be 50 and have responsibilities or whatever. So um, to me, that, that it, was, it was exciting to be able to try to tell that version of the story in the book. But what it means is that in this book, the, the first part of the book, Mimi comes off pretty terribly. But in the second part, she comes off in a slightly more nuanced way. And I'm very, very glad about that, actually, because I, I think there are too many stories out there, both fiction and nonfiction, that really where the mother really takes it on the chin, where it's the mother's fault, you know, that the mother has caused all the problems. And I didn't want this book to be unnecessarily about that. Let's switch back to the father, because on one hand, he's a real achiever. He enters the military, ends up in the Air Force. He develops the Falcon logo insignia for the Air Force. But there's some subtleties. Actually, he's kind of pushed off the fast track. He's now in PR. And then they, you know, you say that he 
ran this big Western states uh, arts and development unit. And then he, but in the, in the interim, he had been into what we'll just label generally a mental hospital. But, but on all your research, was this a stable guy or was this guy? The other thing you did say was, despite there being 12 kids, he was not that engaged and he had affairs himself. What was your insight there? Um, he was most certainly a man of his time in that he didn't, he might have taken intense pride at having such a large family and really loved being the captain of the ship or the, the leader of the football team or whatever of, of, of his little troop of kids, but that he wasn't going to really just, you know, concern himself with the minute to minute domestic issues in the house. And that meant that it all, that, that was the wife's job. And also he had a globe trotting job. He, in the beginning, he was um, with the military flight going, around everywhere. And then as the years went on, he was working nights to get his master's and PhD and became an instructor at the Air Force Academy. And then he didn't stop there. He became the head of the falconry program and traveled all over the country flying falcons at football games wherever the Air Force played and doing speaking engagements about falconry. And then he didn't stop there. Then he went and worked for NORAD and he traveled all over the country to give information sessions during the Cold War about everything that NORAD could do. And then he didn't stop there. He went to work for the international, you know, for, not international, for the Western States lobbying organization. And he went to Washington to lobby for more resources. And he gave out grants to dance companies and arts organizations. And he had Mimi on his arm a lot of the time, but a lot of the time he w was off alone. So he was, he was a mythic, iconic, uh, highly idolized figure in the house. But when he came home, he was about being everybody's buddy and not really necessarily about being too too deep into what was going on. And so the the parent, the kids tended to, to judge their mother harshly because she was the disciplinarian. As the years went on and as they got older, they started to ask themselves more realistic questions like, wait a minute, where was dad when all of this was going on? He could have gotten out. She couldn't. She stayed. You know, she could have she could have blown out of town, too. And we all would have been on the street. Um, but she didn't. She stayed. Okay, let's talk about the oldest brother who first shows signs of schizophrenia, uh, Don. He goes to Colorado State. He has an early marriage. One thing that is consistent through the book, even though his wife, and at some point ex-wife, moves to the Northwest to pursue further education, he is constantly trying to win her back in his mind how long does that actually go on for? And what's the status? And did you ever speak with her and get her perspective? Um, I never spoke with her. Um, I, I did, was never able to track her down. Um, but I know from medical records and from, you know, from written records of the time that when he would break away from the house or break away from a medical setting, it often was to go to Oregon to try to find her. And then a court, there'd be one line in the medical record saying, he was not able to see her or he made it to her house and they did not let him in or they talked for five minutes and she told him to leave. Um, so it was, it was never very productive. His psychotic break was, was contemporaneous with the end of his marriage. And the marriage seemed to be extremely important to Donald because it was the signal that he was a grown up independent man who could make his own decisions. Um, he really needed 
that in his life. Perhaps even independent of his mental illness, he needed to be the the uh, to to inherit the mantle of his father, to be the big shot of the family, to be everybody's uh, role model. And for a time in high school, he was. He was an all state athlete and a wrestling champion, a star football player. He climbed and repelled and jumped out of airplanes. He dated the general's daughter. He was really big deal in high school, but um, he was masking a lot of real difficulties. He was having trouble connecting with people. He was really happier outside, repelling off of cliffs than he was hanging out with friends. And once he was at college, he started to really become very strange and insecure. He would do impulsive things that he didn't understand why he was doing them. This is a hallmark of schizophrenia. He would, he jumped into a bonfire and burned himself. He, he tortured and killed a cat. He he wandered into health services one day, convinced that um, he had his roommate uh, had syphilis and that he was going to give it to him. Yeah, you know, he just started to lift off away from reality for a little bit, and and he was troubled by it too. He was very anxious and upset, and so the marriage or dating and girlfriends was one way to tell himself that everything was all right. You know, that if he could just get married, then he could become a man just like his father. He could, he could have a family just like mom and dad, everything would be fine, but it wasn't fine. He and his wife, the marriage was extraordinarily difficult. At some point she decided she was going to leave and that brought him back into therapy again. And just when the therapist was convinced that he was starting to, mellow out a little bit, he had an enormous psychotic break and almost did real serious harm to his wife and to himself. That was the end of the marriage. And that was Donald's first trip to a real heavy duty mental hospital in Pueblo, Colorado. That was 1970. Okay. You actually spoke to the schizophrenic brothers who were still alive? I did. And that was another huge issue going forward that I really overlooked earlier in our in our talk. That early on, I really... I said to myself, I can't write a book about six people with schizophrenia where they just go crazy and that's the end of it. I, I don't want to say, and then Joe went insane too, and then we walk away from that. I, I needed to be able to write about these people as people, not just as a cookie cutter, sufferers of the same illness. And so when I met the three surviving mentally ill brothers, I was pleased uh, and perhaps I shouldn't have worried at all about this, but I was pleased to see that they were different people where, where their illness manifested in different ways and they had different personalities. And and so it, it was not difficult at all to write about them as individuals. Peter is a peripatetic and high energy and affectionate, a gregarious guy who loves to play the recorder and uh, and loves his family and knows a, and loves to recite everybody's name. And um, Matthew is cantankerous and grumpy and self-pitying and often goes on long jags about how the state owes him money and how um, he, if he doesn't get what he wants, that big hurricanes are going to happen. Um, but he is gentle as, as can be and, and nothing, n- never ever acts on any of his anger. And Donald who we just spoke about a moment ago, Donald has been through decades of, of difficulties, but now is quite quite serene and quite calm. He still has this intense hyper-religiosity that he developed in the 70s and never let go of, but he's quiet about it and, and, and very, very peaceable around everyone 
doesn't say much, but knows exactly what's happening. You can ask him about his family and he knows who everybody is and who's related to everyone else. But then he will spin off into his delusions. He'll say uh, that he is uh, descended from an octopus or that um, he actually, his parents aren't actually Don and Mimi, Mimi Galvin. He was born a few years before in Ireland to another family named Galvin and uh, they sent him here and then he designed 10,000 buildings because he's an architect. And then he has 8,000 other careers and his favorite one is a falconer. Um, you, you see, it's become sort of a word salad after a while. So he, he's not able to sustain it. But, but he's, I guess sort of the point I'm trying to get at is that these aren't, these aren't straitjacket maximum security hospital situations for these guys they all are under some level of care and and getting lots of prescriptions but you know matthew has been able to live independently most of his adult life in federally subsidized section 8 housing he can drive a car um the other guys you know they can be with their family on holidays and on weekends if they their guests and and so it's it's interesting to see um how they have come along over the years of course, okay. their their family only sees the loss. Like they see what the people they used to be. And- okay, so uh, talking about the other two brothers who are still with us, you could have a conversation with them just like you're having one with my, me right now. Not just like it. No, they all have cognitive issues. It's it's ta- you're definitely talking with somebody who is disabled in some way, and they all have conver- They all have subjects that they like to go back to and become broken records about. Um, so you, you they they basically control the conversation, and it's about one or two, or three limited subjects. Um, uh, but in the in the fringes, you sort of get little senses of their memories, their childhood memories. You see the tenderness they feel toward their their family members who come to visit them. Quite often, you see the gratitude that they have toward the family members who come to visit them, which is really quite nice to see as well. So it's a at this level at this age with this, this many years of medication behind them, it's become more, a little bit more analogous to visiting a relative with Down syndrome, let's say, or, or with what kind of syndrome with Down syndrome or something like that. Somebody, they're just cognitive issues. Right. But, uh, you, did you feel any danger being around them? Oh, absolutely not. No, no, they're all, everybody's. And then that's, I think the trajectory of this illness is that, the volatility and unpredictability and and anxiety it, it one people tend to mellow out a little bit by the time they're in middle age and then sometimes the drugs they've been taking for decades have muffled those symptoms as well okay so um one thing even i know from writing about it uh it's almost like uh the democratic left in that some of the terms are very touchy you know, you say that now schizophrenia is a spectrum. Mentally ill is an issue. So what is the proper terminology today? Well, I think um, the the safest thing would be to say that someone has been diagnosed with schizophrenia. Um, I think using schizophrenic as a noun, like, like I, you know, three schizophrenics walk into a bar, that's not cool. Um, it, 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 the, the word schizophrenic, even as an adjective, tends to be uh, sound a little pejorative. And so I actually did a little house cleaning with the book late in the game. And I went and vacuumed out 
all the times that I use the word schizophrenic as an adjective and I, uh, or as a noun, and I, instead I would say people with schizophrenia or patients diagnosed with schizophrenia or schizophrenia patients, just to make sure that I wasn't seeming too cavalier. Um, I, I don't think that that's a... Um, I don't think that these are these are huge abusive terms necessarily the way that some other you know terms might be but they you, but but it's that's the recent thinking on that stuff. Okay, John ends up moving to Idaho and pretty much distances himself from the family. Do you believe that self-preservation he's working as a music teacher not making a huge income? What's your perspective on that? Well, his he's the third child and the two older brothers, Jim and Donald, they, um, they feuded amongst one another and they bullied one another, but they also bullied everybody younger than them. So John was directly in the line of fire of that growing up. The parents were so invested in being a model family that they kind of turned a blind eye to any roughhousing and kind of wrote it off. But John was legitimately afraid he was getting beat up a lot. And then of course, you can't discount the fact that there probably were early signs of extreme mental illness in both Jim and Donald. And so they didn't probably didn't know limits and they probably, you know, things probably got pretty ugly. So I think John was very happy to leave for college and then very happy to meet and marry someone almost immediately and, and, and really not come back. Um, he came back to visit obviously, and he has good relationships with a lot of his siblings, but he really did not, um, you know, he, he really was glad to get out at that time. Okay. The father, at first he's in the Air Force. The mother doesn't work outside the home. How does this work monetarily with 12 children? Is it just a different era or was there a lot of sacrifice or there was enough money? Well, she made all their clothes. She worked the sewing machine. Um, the Air Force gave them you know, health benefits, obviously. So there wasn't that kind of issue. Um, but no, money was very, very tight all the time. And, and that was the one good thing about writing about this particular family is that they really weren't, they didn't send anybody to the Menninger Clinic. There was nobody who, who went to, I don't know, to Sweden or something to, to deal with their psychiatric issues. There was, these were, these were middle-class people with, with real money issues and they often ended up in the state mental hospital. But yeah, there was, it was clear they would have to go to state colleges and um, and they, they when they bought their dream house in 1963 in the suburbs on Hidden Valley Road, it, it was a ranch house that it was extremely ordinary looking and that barely held them all. You know, it wasn't like they suddenly, everybody suddenly had a room of their own. With 12 children, they had like three different rooms with two bunk beds in them. Let's talk about the survivors who, uh, can we say mentally ill? Because I got some blowback on that. Sure. Okay. The survivors were not mentally ill. Lindsay does a lot of psychotherapy, gets her older sister, Margaret, a little bit into psychotherapy. But Lindsay ends up being hands-on, and Margaret is definitely hands-off. So of the remaining people, wait, there's John. There is it Michael who was in the uh, the uh, farm or whatever it was. So mm -hmm. there's there, those four. Any other ones who were not uh, diagnosed? There's Mark, um, Mark, Mark, who who's led a quiet life. He he worked at the University of Colorado bookstore for a while in Boulder, and now is uh, he's retired. But he married and had a few kids. But he kind of kept to himself. Mark was a sad case because in any very large family, the, the the siblings closest to you become your sort of family unit within the family, 
And so he was one of a foursome with, with Peter and Matthew and Joe. The four of them played hockey together. They were on the same teams. They, they often were in the paper together about scoring goals together. They really were, were, were tighter than, than the rest of the family was to them. But all three of those brothers all became mentally ill. He lost Matthew, Joe, and, 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 and it was really hard for him. It was like he lost his whole family. So of the five remaining, I'll say, lucid uh, members, to what degree are they affected permanently by this upbringing? I would say that the one thing they all share is a certain hypervigilance, that, that even if they, Michael may not acknowledge it because he's a, you know, sort of a child of the 60s and a hippie and, and feels as if he's laid back. But it's clear from my observation that he's, and, and Margaret and Lindsay and Mark, that they all are are they remember what it was like to grow up in a house where either you were going to go insane yourself or you were going to watch somebody else in your family go insane. And so you would go to bed every night wondering, would you wake up the same in the morning? And then once you were up, you were wondering, I sure hope that I don't step out of line or else my parents will think that something is wrong with me. And so that sort of hypervigilance doesn't really ever go away. And they all, they, they all lead functional lives and are have you know have had happy marriages and many of them have kids and but but I think if you talk to them at length you'll get the sense that they have a certain watchfulness and wariness about them. Okay, if you go into the science which is threaded throughout even when we get to the end and I don't really think I'm giving any, anything away here there is not a definitive solution in terms of what exactly is going on and how to treat it. Can you amplify that a little bit? That's true. And I didn't want to oversell the book that way. I didn't want to say that the, there was a smoking gun or a, a Rosetta Stone that the family supplied. But um, I do think that they had something of value to offer. They, they were um, they, they existed at a time when we were just discovering uh, how to understand the genetic code and how to analyze the human genome. And at the time, there was a lot of excitement that it, if you just had a general understanding of what a normal, so-called normal human genome should be, all you'd have to do is look on the computer and compare that with somebody who had schizophrenia or cancer or any other you know, disease and just see what was different. And you would solve the problem by dinner time. Like you, you, you would be able to find the smoking gun genes that would cause, that cause those diseases. But what we learned once the human genome got sequenced is that for complicated diseases like cancer and Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's and schizophrenia, it's not one gene and it's not three genes and it's not 14 genes. It's more than 100 genes so far that they have found that have genetic irregularities that might play some tiny little role in schizophrenia. And that is, that's been very dispiriting. But what that's meant is that the people like the researchers in Hidden Valley Road who have been studying families like the Galvins, it means that they were, have been on the right track all along because it's those families who actually might be able to demonstrate exactly how the disease plays out in uh, not just in genetics, but in the brain. Because they all, if they all share a certain mutation, they can see how that mutation might affect brain function. And so there's promise from them in that regard. That's kind of a long answer. The, the shorter answer to your question is, um, to me, this, the science in this story serves the family story, that the, 
that the march of progress in science is not like, not everything is polio. Not everything is a horrible illness that one day we just solve and then we, we, we all can go to bed. Um, most science is wiggly and wobbly and two steps forward and one step back. And that's been the, the story of schizophrenia so far. And this family is, is our window into that story. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink that's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, one amazing thing is because, you know, you start early in the last century and then the kids are born in the baby boom era is, you know, you talk about the research and then it's 10 years later that these people come back in that you say this was not a wealthy family that could necessarily seek out the best and the brightest they're living you know people come in we got the cure and then they disappear for 10 years that must have been very depressing i don't know how they kept it together absolutely and um and i think one reason why they they finally decided to move forward with the book is that they had some inkling from one research team that there was some work being done that they had a hand in helping out with, but they really didn't know what was going on with the other team. And so they were hoping a reporter could help with that too. So I almost, one of the very first things I did was I called up Dr. Lynn DeLisi in New England and I said, you know, the, the family says that you studied them long ago. And she said, oh yes, I remember them. I've been meaning to call them because we just found out something about their genes. 
And I wow. said, you, you've got to be kidding me. And so they, I connected them together in 2016. And, and a lot of the revelations from that are sort of at the end of the book. So let's talk about you for a second. You're from where originally? Um, uh, my whole family's from Baltimore. And I, um, as a kid, I moved out to the Burbs. So I'm from Columbia, Maryland, between Baltimore and Washington. And your parents did what for a living? My uh, my dad was a real estate developer. He's retired now, and my mother for 25 years was um, worked in the in the psychiatric part of our little local hospital. She was she was not a psychiatrist. She was a um, she had a master's in counseling psychology, so she was a psych assistant. And this was a local hospital where you know people would cycle through. Who maybe maybe there'd be some people with schizophrenia who would go until their health benefits ran out for the month and then they so they'd come for a few days at a time but mostly it was trauma from people who were in car crashes or teenagers with suicide attempts you know the sort of thing a local hospital would deal with so she was and she was not a theoretician she she didn't come home and talk about freud and young with us she was very practical and very pragmatic and really was really just there to help out so it's i don't want to oh, to suggest that I got this fascination with psychiatry from my mother, but I did get her listening skills for sure. She was a really, really good active listener. And so I, I credit her with that. How many kids in the family? I'm the youngest of three. And so you go to college where? Um, I went to Columbia University uh, undergrad and I, I got here in New York. I arrived in the fall of 1987 when nobody wanted to move to New York. And so it was very easy to get into Columbia. And my friends and I, from that time, we all say how we never could have gotten in now. That's <laughs> what they say. But leaving that aside, at what point do you, deci <laughs> do you decide you want to become a writer? Um, I, I loved writing from, from fifth grade onward. I didn't know what I was going to do with it, but I just thought I would keep going with it. And I really was not, didn't discover reporting until I was 23 and out of college for a year or two and working at a little local neighborhood newspaper doing neighborhood news. Um, when I was a kid in the 80s, the people who wanted to become reporters wanted to be Woodward and Bernstein or a foreign correspondent or Sam Donaldson they were, or the, you know, in the White House pool. And these were things that I just never really connected with emotionally. I wanted to be, you know, maybe a movie critic or an essay writer or something. But then um, I majored in history in college, and I loved the narrative aspect of history, the, the, the idea of different concepts coming up over and over again and following them through over time. And then as a reporter, I found that I was talking to people who were everyday people, people who never thought they'd ever be in the papers. And they were dealing with situations on their block, like, I don't know, fighting the local market because they were littering or worried about a drug war happening on their block or um, fighting the skyscraper that was planned to go up two blocks away. And I would come back to them week after week after week, and it became a, a serial. It became like a, like a soap opera. And I also developed nice relationships with those sources and got to know them as people. And so... I was writing about everyday human dramas. And um, when my career really took off several years later and I got worked at New York Magazine, I was able to spin out reporting like that into longer, bigger feature stories with the, that were about higher stakes issues and higher profile things. But I never really stepped away from that approach, which is to tell narrative stories about people going through difficult situations. Now, you did or did not go to graduate school? It's unclear here. I did not. 
Um, uh, the way smiling. you were talking about it, said I went to undergraduate school. Not that you had to, but I was wondering whether it was a shoot a drop there. No, I'm smiling because I worked at the school paper in the art section of the school paper, and and there was a reverse snobbery at Columbia's uh, school newspaper where where everybody said we don't have to go to J school because we're putting out the school paper at Columbia, and you know we're better than the J school, and who needs J school? And of course, half the people. Who who said that ended up going to J school and and J school's great. I've, but most of the many of the people I love in my career went to J school. But I just never ended up there for one reason or another. Okay, so how did you end up uh, working at New York Magazine? Well, I I got there when I was twenty nine. Before that, I really jumped around a lot. Um, I um I wanted to work in magazines and wasn't sure how. I didn't know how to make that jump from little weekly papers to magazines. And so I worked at Backstage, the theater newspaper, and I edited articles for them and I wrote articles for them. And then um, one day in 1995, Time Out magazine announced that it was going to launch its New York City version of the magazine, you know, the London Time Out magazine. So Time Out New York launched in, in 1995 and that was suddenly in a very difficult time financially in New York that was 30 new journalism jobs suddenly. And and I was one of the people hired there and I was part of a launch, which was great. And it was like being in college all over again. We worked 24 hours a day to get this thing off the ground. And I was writing city stories that were really, that would have been at, at home at New York Magazine. And so it kind of makes sense in hindsight that three years later I got hired at New York Magazine to do a lot of the same sort of stuff that I was doing at Time Out Magazine. And you ultimately wrote a story about a superintendent of schools on Long Island that was just recently a very highly reviewed HBO series. Yes, I can take no credit for the movie, but it, it, it it's the sort of thing that magazine writers dream of happening, that one day somebody's making a movie and, and options your story and and uh, and uses it and it makes it into a movie. And the New York Magazine has a nice track record with that. Hustlers came from a New York Magazine story, an American Gangster came from a New York Magazine story, and Saturday Night Fever obviously came from a New York Magazine story. But the um, in this case, I'd been writing a lot of stories set out on Long Island. Um, I think it's because I live in Brooklyn, which is not so far from Long Island, and that I had a car. So they thought, well, you can go out there. It's easy for you. And... Um, they were all these kind of gritty narratives. This was this was a few years after Amy Fisher and Joey Buttafuoco, but there were plenty of other stories like that happening out there. And this was an amazing story about um, the biggest public school system embezzlement scandal in America, all happening in a very high profile, very swanky part of Long Island where the kids all went to Harvard um, called Roslyn. And um, the superintendent was a, was a was a god um there he was really held up in high esteem because he was delivering for everyone and he probably would have done that for years and years more if if his if it hadn't been found out that he was you know stealing from the register and so the question i asked in that article was did he swindle the town or did the town allow him themselves to be swindled by him because you know, because they needed his success. They needed him to be delivering for them. And uh, I, I never dreamed it would be a story. And then there was a young man named Mike Mikowski, who was a junior high school student at the time of the scandal. Years go by, he grows up, he becomes a screenwriter, and he decides to write about it, and he options my story. And I know I don't blink an eye. Like, I think, well, these things never get made into movies. And then one day, 
I get an email from the magazine years after I left the magazine saying, good news, they're starting to shoot it with Hugh Jackman and Alice and Janney. And I was, you know, I fell on the floor. It was wonderful, really wonderful. And I really, I really liked the movie a lot. Okay, what is the deal with New York? If you write something and it's optioned, uh, do you split it with New York Magazine or you get all of it or how does it work? Well, in the old days, you'd get all of it. And then that was just sort of a convention of the business that you... Um, that 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 uh, even if technically it was a work for hire, um, and uh, and it was technically the intellectual property of the publication, it was a professional courtesy that they would sign a one sheeter called a publisher's release and allow you to option the story and you would get the money for the story. The idea was that it doesn't happen that often, and that the magazine was too busy uh, making money other ways to try to horn in on these deals because the amount of time and hours it takes to try to develop those deals you end up spending all the money that you would make on those deals. But then the business changed. And um, and uh, this is maybe longer answer than you're expecting, but the business really contracted and, ev- and everybody needed money everywhere. And there were a couple of huge successes out there that the, um, that the publication didn't get a dime from. And I'm speaking specifically of Sex in the City and the New York Observer. Like the, the New York Observer was this tiny little paper that was losing money all the time. And Candace Bushnell sold the idea for Sex in the City, which was printed in the Observer, and the Observer didn't get a cent from it. And so I think magazines and publications started to wake up about 10 or 15 years ago and say, well, we can't let that happen. And so they started to negotiate with their writers and um, and they started to come up with revenue sharing arrangements. So now even the New York Times, which develops TV series and, and movies from and and reality shows and whatnot from various things that they print. They have a revenue sharing arrangement where the paper gets some and the writer gets some. And I think New York Magazine does too. What happened on your deal on that movie? I think I was grandfathered in. So like everything up to this insanely high amount I was gonna get a hundred percent of. And then if it if it became a superhero franchise or or sex in the city or something like that then then i would start having to split 50 cents on the dollar with the magazine but when the picture actually went to hbo when it was developed you got another payment yeah exactly when they when they started the day they started shooting with uh, the first day of principal photography i got another check okay did you have any other stories option that didn't ultimately go to screen oh yes um those were all for tv movies because you know there was even before the true crime boom of the streaming era with making a murderer and whatnot, um, there was always a um, demand at like the for the A and E channel or from 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 Lifetime, you know, for for a quick rip from the headlines movies. And so quite often the reported stories, like the ones I did for New York Magazine, got optioned. There was one about uh, John O'Neill, the FBI's terrorism expert. Who, who died in the World Trade Center attacks. That was optioned. It never got made into anything. And then the murder of Ted Ammon out in the Hamptons. He was a huge multimillionaire whose wife had him killed. That that got made into a movie, but not my story. Someone else's, the Vanity Fair story <laughs> got optioned. And then uh, the, the story of um, Carlita White, who solved her own kidnapping. One day she... she uh, one day she did a little legwork and saw that the woman she thought was her mother had actually kidnapped her as a baby from the hospital. That was an amazing story. 
that got made into a, to- a lifetime movie. But again, not my story. It was somebody else's story. So, but they all, they, everybody's sort of putting little bets on the table. So they pick up these stories every now and then. And how do you end up leaving New York Magazine? Um, I had written Lost Girls, which was a success. Um, it was a, you know, briefly a bestseller. It got optioned for the movies and eventually became a movie this past spring on Netflix with Amy Ryan that I'm really proud of. Um, but um, the magazine at that time uh, went bi-weekly. Instead of being coming out every week, it was coming out every other week, which meant that they need fewer people like me to write the big, longer stories and cover stories. And so they started talking with each of us about how our roles might change. And I thought, well, this is the right time for me to you know, write elsewhere and to, to write, continue writing for New York, but also write for the New York Times magazine, to write for Wired. Um, and so I did. I, um, I moved on. And then I quit very quickly got recruited by Bloomberg Businessweek to be an investigative reporter for Bloomberg, a projects reporter for them. And that was an amazing job, a wonderful job, because I could write really uh, exciting, entertaining, propulsive narrative feature stories for, for Businessweek magazine. But the subject matter could be new and fresh to me, and I would learn something new every time. And because it was Bloomberg, it was worldwide. I was no longer just writing about the New York metro area. I was flying all around the world writing about stories. And it was shortly after I started my job there that I first had that first phone call with Lindsay and Margaret with the Galvin family. Yeah, one of the things I said to them was, I just started a new job. (laughs) Um, I can't exactly walk away from it. But anyway, it all goes slowly anyway. Books take forever anyway. So let's keep talking. And that's how it happened. So you ultimately did quit Bloomberg. I did. They're very good with book leave at Bloomberg, but they're at a diff- totally different model. They, the people who go and write books for them, they are beat writers who have a certain expertise. Like they write about Jeff Bezos or they write about Instagram and they break away for six weeks and write their book about Instagram and then they come back. Whereas I was having to learn about schizophrenia from, the, from scratch. And so I, I had to go away for too long. But I love those guys. I'd write for them again. They're, they're oh, terrific. Okay, so you referenced the family. What does your family look like, your personal family? Um, I'm, I'm married. My wife is Kirsten Danis. She's a superstar editor at the New York Times. She, she, um, she edits investigative reporting stories for um, the Metro section, for the New York City section, and her reporter just won a Pulitzer, so it's been an exciting year for her. Very proud of her. And... Um, Our kids are 17 and 14. Um, The 14-year-old is going to go into high school next year. So they're really turning the corner. And we're lucky that way, too, in a sense, because during this quarantine period, it means um, they aren't three and four years old and running around. Like, they they have their things to do, and they're, they're, they're cool to hang out with. I actually was listening to you talked to Titus Welliver and he said his kids were similar ages. And I thought, oh, I know what he's, I, I, I can picture what he's experiencing. So how'd you meet your wife? We were in college together, but she was always more of a newsy than me. Like I was like an arts writer, writing movie reviews and editing the arts publication of the school paper. And she was a year younger and uh, a news reporter and then eventually became the editor in chief of the Columbia newspaper. And then she stayed in, we stayed in New York and stayed together, and we married many years later, but we circled e- we, we, each other like sharks for many, many years, and then we married in our late 20s. But it was always a relationship then? or Oh, yeah. Yeah, we were always together since my senior year since you know, and her junior year. 
Okay, so needless to say, Hidden Valley Road is a is both a financial and a critical success. And as we established earlier, as much as you loved it, even beyond your dreams. So what's the dream now? That's a really good question. Um, I, um, I'm delighted to be in a position where um, it, when I have an idea for another book, that the doors might open more quickly than they might otherwise, that I, it won't just be somebody calling up somebody saying, Hey, I'd like to talk to you. It's the guy who wrote that book calling to saying, I want to talk to you. So I, I'd like to take that, that new situation for a spin and see where it takes me. I, I I'm start. It's starting to dawn on me now that um, I could just cold call a lot of very smart people out there to find out information about new subjects and I, and I might get the calls returned more often now because I'm the guy who wrote that book. So I, I'd like to see how, where that takes me. And um, I do love drama, dramatic, vivid stories about people. And it always starts with the people. If it's about a family, so much the better. If it takes me into a subject area like schizophrenia or, or any other subject area where I'm learning something new, so much the better. I love books that do that. Um, every everything from Moneyball to Behind the Beautiful Forevers by Catherine Boo, anything that takes me somewhere else and helps me relate to the people who are experiencing those things is, is good in my book. Well, you're very articulate and some writers, they can put their fingers on the keyboard, but they can't really talk. That certainly isn't you. And by my standards, you earned your acceptance at Columbia. In any event, <laughs> in any event Bob, thanks so much for doing this. Uh, thanks, Bob. I really appreciate it. And I highly recommend this book. I wrote about it, and then Bob reached out on Twitter. This is not something put together by a publicist. This book is truly great. And I'm not saying that because I'm talking to you. I'm not blowing smoke up your rear end. What you had to write about it on your newsletter was so kind and so flattering. I was just had to reach out to you and thank you. Well, as I say, the good, that's one thing I have. You, one thing I know is if I write something, the person reads it. Frequently, <laughs> they get back to me. If I say something not so positive, you never know. But if you bump into them, said, oh, they read it. In any event, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you, Bob. Till next time, it's Bob Left Sense. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis, mm -hmm. back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money 
on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry, the world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 